Hello, everyone. Welcome to Women in the Word. My name is Amy Foster. I'm part of your teaching team. I'm just privileged to be studying with you every week. This, today, we're going to look at Genesis chapter 39, but our whole summer series is called Steady Love. And that has me really thinking about famous love stories that we've all heard in the course of our lives. I think my favorite love story is actually from a Jane Austen novel called Sense and Sensibility. And just this weekend, I made my family sit through it. There's kind of a silly scene in it where the two most ridiculously romantic characters are meeting and falling in love very quickly. And as they talk about their favorite Shakespeare love sonnets, they realize they both have the, favorite, the same favorite sonnet. And together they recite, love is not love which alters when it alteration finds or bends with the remover to remove. And it's this silly glorified idea of romantic love. And the idea is that that love never changes. It's stable and steady and faithful forever. But the poor heroine in that movie soon realizes that her love is not stable. The romantic hero figures out he will be penniless and poor if he marries this girl. And no offense to Shakespeare, but his love alters and he drops her like a hot potato. You know, that's really the big fear for all of us. That's the big risk in human love, that it can change and alter and be unfaithful. And that's the theme of all our real heartaches, isn't it? Love that isn't faithful in friendship, in families, in romantic relationships. No one wants to be abandoned by love in a relationship. We want a love that will be steady and faithful and stick with us forever. And that's the love that God offers us. God's love is called hesed, and that's a Hebrew word, and I'm probably not pronouncing it correctly because I'm a Texas girl. But hesed gets translated into English just with our simple word love. But our word love just seems to imply affection or feelings. And hesed, God's love, is so much more than that. It's a many-faceted word. It really describes one of God's chief attributes, and it's a word that God uses to describe himself. So hesed means more than just deep affection. It means faithfulness and loyalty and mercy. It's a steadfast love. It's everlasting kindness. And just one small aspect of that love that isn't just feeling or affection is faithful love in action. And that's what we're going to be focusing on today when we look at Joseph's life. And it's this idea that God's love is always active and faithful. So let's unpack that just a little bit. How is God's love active? God is always the initiator when he's loving. He's the one who takes the practical action and move towards people in love. You know, instead of approaching mankind like a bunch of sinners who deserve punishment, God doesn't do that. He actively steps towards us, making a way for us to be in a relationship with him. We see him do that in the Old Testament as he commits himself to the nation of Israel. And then we see him do that in the New Testament by actively sending Jesus to be our sin sacrifice so we can live in relationship with God. And there's another interesting thing about God's activity for us. It's always for our good and it's never a fair bargain. 
This is not a picture of two equal partners coming together, each offering something valuable. It's a picture of God, the God of the universe, coming and offering everything. He has no need to be in a relationship with us. It's just that he wants what is good for us. That is his active hesed love. So God comes to us and he makes this relationship possible. I think the best description of that comes in Romans 5, 8. And Christ died for us while we were sinners. This is God's activity of love on our behalf. So God's love is always active, but God's love is also always faithful. He commits himself to a relationship with us and he stays in that relationship forever. His love doesn't alter when it finds an alteration. And you have to consider he's God. He can do whatever he wants. He's obligated to no one and there's no external force policing or controlling him. He chooses to commit himself to people and then he chooses to stay committed forever. He's completely faithful. So what we see in the story of Joseph is a picture of this amazing love of God, but it is a complicated story. And we're just looking at one little snippet today. So I wanna give you a little history of where we are in this story. It begins actually way back earlier in Genesis. God actively comes towards a man to offer love. He comes to Abraham, or your Bible might be at this point calling him Abram. That's the same person. And God offers to live in a special relationship with this man, Abraham. Look at Genesis 12, verses one through three. Now the Lord said to Abram, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I will make of you a great nation and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and in him who dishonors you, I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So God is committing himself to this man, Abraham, and he's promising to make his family into a great nation. He's promising to give him a land. He's promising to bless them. And ultimately he says he's going to bless the entire world through this one family, through this nation. And the regular use of that word bless over and over and over again, it makes it very clear this is God's activity for Abraham's good. This is God's activity for the world's good. It's God actively loving. Well, you may know how the story goes. Abraham was old and he was childless and he waited to have a child and God was faithful to his promise and gives Abraham a child named Isaac. We're gonna learn more about Isaac next week, so stay tuned for that. And then God repeats this promise and makes this covenant with Isaac. We know Isaac had twin sons, Jacob and Esau, and God repeats the covenant and promises that his promise is going to continue through Jacob's side of the family. Now, Jacob was an interesting fellow. In his history, he ended up taking two wives, the beautiful Rachel and the not so beautiful Leah. Now we have to include a little sidebar here. Two wives is never a good idea. God doesn't endorse it, even though he describes it here. But every time it's described in the Bible, it's always a big, hot mess. This was not God's plan. This was not God's best. It was man's choice. 
but God stays faithful to this family and to his covenant. Jacob would ultimately have 12 sons, and those 12 sons become the 12 tribes of the nation of Israel. But at this point in our story, they are not a nation yet. So Jacob has two wives. They're a bit of a mess. The wives start competing who can bear the most children. And Leah, the unloved wife, she pulls way out ahead using some unscrupulous methods here. And finally, Rachel, the favorite wife, bears a son. This is son number 11 born to Jacob and he names him Joseph. And little brother Joseph quickly becomes the father's favorite child. Now you may be familiar with the story of Joseph and his technicolor dream coat. This was the multicolored robe that was a gift to Joseph from his father. And this robe really signified Joseph as the favorite son. And it also drove a deep wedge between Joseph and his brothers. All right, God also comes to Joseph early in his life with a series of dreams and gives Joseph a little sneak peek into his future. God gives Joseph these dreams where he shows him Joseph will somehow be elevated above his brothers and his parents, and they will be bowing down to him. Joseph shares this information with his brothers in Genesis 37, verse 8. Here's how the brothers responded. His brothers said to him, Are you indeed to reign over us? Are you indeed to rule over us? And so they hated him even more for his dreams and for his words. So we've got a family that God is committed to, but the brothers are jealously hating Joseph. And their hatred roils over and they do the unimaginable. One day as they're out shepherding their flocks, these brothers conspire to kill little brother Joseph. But one brother intervenes and instead of killing him, they strip off that multicolored robe, they throw him into a pit against his will. And as some foreign traders pass by, they sell their brother into slavery. The traders take Joseph all the way to Egypt. That's where our story picks up today. As we look at this story of Joseph, we always have to remember the promise of God. Through this family, I'm building a great nation. And through this nation, I'm going to bless the world. And it's obvious at this point in the story, God doesn't make this promise and this covenant to them because they are virtuous or noble or wise. He doesn't make the promise because they're numerous or strong. God makes the promise because he has actively chosen to love them. And he'll be faithful to that love. He'll stick with his promise until it is fulfilled. So open your Bibles to Genesis chapter 39. And as we read through the story, remember the promise of God. But I also want you to pay a little bit of attention to the grammar in this chapter. Actually, I want you to pay attention to the sentence structure. Because in almost every single sentence, Joseph isn't the subject. Joseph isn't the one doing anything or um, displaying any of the action. Actually, Joseph is always the object. Things are being done to him. I think the writer frames every single sentence this way to give us a really clear picture of Joseph's vulnerability and his powerlessness. So begin reading with me, Genesis 39, verse one. Now Joseph had been brought down to Egypt and Potiphar, an officer of Pharaoh, the captain of the guard, an Egyptian, had bought him from the Ishmaelites who had brought him down there. 
Okay, Joseph is the object. He's been sold by his brothers. He's been carried into a foreign land by slave traders. And now he's been purchased by a wealthy officer. I've given you a map. Take a look at this. I think it's really helpful to remind ourselves these are real people in real places. We know that Joseph was taken right there from the area called Dothan. That sits right in the middle of modern day Israel today. He was carried along by the traders along the Mediterranean Sea. And then their path kind of grows across the top of where the Sinai Peninsula sits today. And he's carried into Egypt. If we use today's geographical boundaries, this is the equivalent of being relocated from the continent of Asia to the continent of Egypt. So it's a big dramatic relocation for Joseph. And we have to pay attention to the fact that Joseph didn't choose any of these things, but because of other people's actions, he's lost his family, his home, his country, and his freedom. And the circumstances here in verse one, they certainly suggest alone, abandoned, forsaken by everyone and everything. But look at verse two. The Lord was with Joseph and he became a successful man and he was in the house of his Egyptian master. His master saw that the Lord was with him and that the Lord caused all that he did to succeed in his hands. So Joseph found favor in his sight and attended him and he made him overseer of his house and he put him in charge of all that he had. From the time that he made him overseer in his house and over all that he had, the Lord blessed the Egyptian's house for Joseph's sake. The blessing of the Lord was on all that he had in house and field. So he left all that he had in Joseph's charge. And because of him, he had no concern about anything but the food he would eat. So we see right here in verse two, Joseph wasn't alone. He hadn't been abandoned by everyone because the Lord was with him. And that's a really curious expression, the Lord was with him. It's actually used pretty frequently in the Old Testament. And it's always used to describe someone having phenomenal success. Maybe it's military success um, or great prosperity, but it always means it is overwhelmingly evident that the success is because of God's presence. So there's a very real supernatural aspect to this success. This expression, the Lord was with him, it's used multiple times referring to Joshua when he has mighty military victories as he's bringing the Israelites into the promised land. It's used, the Lord was with the judges. They would have these military victories when they were so profoundly outnumbered. It was clearly a miraculous victory. And it was also used, the Lord was with David, giving him success in battle. One time it was even success when he did hand-to-hand -hand combat with a giant. So when it says the Lord was with him, it doesn't mean they were lucky and fortunate and things went well. It means God was supernaturally giving them remarkable success. For Joseph, it quite literally means everything his hand touches, it prospers and it flourishes. And it's obvious. It's so obvious that even the Egyptians, and they are pagan, meaning they do not know God, they do not worship God. But it is so obvious that the Egyptians even recognize this is the presence of God with Joseph. So ultimately it's good for Joseph, but it brings great glory to God as well. So Joseph is given more and more responsibility. You may have noticed that we repeat four times in that passage, 
all that Potiphar had, all of it. We know Potiphar was this military officer directly under Pharaoh, the, the head of everything in Egypt. That was a successful and a prestigious position. Most likely it had some wealth and some blessing attached to it. From the text, we can definitely figure out that there was a home and some property that needed to be managed, and there was some kind of economic development attached to that property. Now, Joseph, the foreign-born slave, is given freedom to oversee all the household dealings and all the business dealings, and he does such a good job of it that Potiphar pays attention to nothing. It gives us an idea here. All Potiphar thinks about is, what's for supper tonight? He doesn't have to pay attention to anything when Joseph is taking care of it. It's just really a staggering elevation for a slave. Why would God do this? Look at verse five in your Bible. For Joseph's sake. God does it for Joseph. He hasn't abandoned him. He cares about his well-being because God has bound himself to Joseph forever. And he doesn't abandon Joseph when the circumstances take an unexpected turn. Now, we're never told how Joseph felt. I looked all through this passage to get a sense of what was Joseph feeling? What questions was Joseph asking? But we've all been in abandoned, uh, unexpected circumstances, and we can use our imagination. I know what I would be asking, God, where are you? Have you abandoned me? And the answer to that question is always no. God doesn't abandon his own. He doesn't break his promise. He doesn't alter his love. When we ask those questions, assuming that God has abandoned us, we're letting our circumstances shape our view of God. And all I can say about that is don't. Don't do it. Don't interpret God through your circumstances. Instead, we interpret our circumstances through what we know of God. He has told us that he loves us with a faithful and an active love. All right, we're gonna continue reading the second half of verse six. But again, in these verses, I want you to pay attention to the sentence structure. It's still other people acting and Joseph is just the object of all of their activity. Verse six. Now Joseph was handsome in form and appearance, and after a time his master's wife cast her eyes on Joseph and said, lie with me. But he refused and said to his master's wife, behold, because of me, my master has no concern about anything in the house, and he has put everything that he has in my charge. He is no greater in this house than I am, nor has he kept back anything from me except you, because you are his wife. How then can I do this great wickedness and sin against God. And as she spoke to Joseph day after day, he would not listen to her to lie beside her or to be with her. Okay, so it tells us Joseph is handsome in form and appearance. We would translate that he is a hottie. He is good looking and easy on the eyes. And actually this exact same expression was used to describe Joseph's beautiful mother, Rachel. So Joseph is a bright and desirable young man. And when Potiphar's wife wants to lie with him, that's a euphemism. The Bible uses that term pretty often. It means she wants to have a sexual encounter with Joseph. 
but Joseph refuses on three counts. First, he says it would violate the trust and confidence that Potiphar has placed in Joseph. Second, he says it violates Potiphar's right as the husband. And third and most importantly, Joseph says it's sin against God. This is sin against God. And he's pretty bold with this woman here because when he uses the term wickedness, he's not making this look pleasant at all. He's pointing out the total depravity of her offer. So let's consider a little bit uh, the culture of the day. This was Egyptian culture. But in Egyptian culture, there was a word used to describe a sexual relationship outside of marriage. And the word was adultery. There's some historical records that tell us some countries in this area outlawed adultery and there was a death penalty attached to it. That was probably not the law in Egypt, even though there were legal protections for marriage. In Egypt at this time, history tells us that marital infidelity was very prevalent. That was the Egyptian culture. But what about God's culture? Because Joseph has brought God's culture into Egypt. A sexual relationship outside of marriage in God's culture has a name, and the name is still adultery. It is sin against man, but most importantly, it's sin against God's holy standard. And so we have this picture of Joseph who understands both cultures, and he chooses obedience to God. And it tells us he has to make this choice over and over again, putting distance between himself and this woman. Now I'm going to summarize the next three verses and tell you what happens in Potiphar's house. One day this wife spies an opportunity. Joseph is doing his work, literally minding his own business, and no one is around. So we're told that she caught Joseph by his robe and demanded, lie with me. And the word caught is really interesting. It's used other places in the Bible, and it's always used to describe a young woman being caught to be violated or raped. So this demand that she makes, it's really more a picture of an entrapment than a seduction here. And Joseph tries to resist her. We're not sure if she's clutching at his robe and that's why he leaves it behind. But Joseph runs away and his robe, his garment is left behind. This woman becomes vindictive and she accuses Joseph of rape. She's actually going to hold two informal trials here. She's going to accuse Joseph in front of all of the household help, and then she's going to accuse Joseph in front of Potiphar. Both times, her argument is full of masterful manipulation and deception. Let's read it. This begins in verse 14. She called to the men of her household and said to them, See, he has brought among us a Hebrew to laugh at us. He came in to me to lie with me, and I cried out with a loud voice. And as soon as he heard that I lifted my voice and cried out, he left his garment beside me and fled and got out of the house. Then she laid up his garment by her until his master came home, and she told him the same story. So let's take her argument apart a little bit here. First, she says, everything is ultimately Potiphar's fault because he's the one who brought this slave into our house. Secondly, she emphasizes overtly the fact that Joseph is a foreigner. You may have noticed she never refers to him by name, but she refers to him as this Hebrew. And I have no doubt she said it with that much scorn and contempt 
This is a derogatory racial slur that she is losing here. We have to remember the Hebrew people, they were not the nation of Israel at this time. They were nomadic people with herds and livestock and the Egyptians considered them unclean. The Egyptians won't sit down and eat at a table if Hebrews are there. So she sets the entire household against Joseph and then she sets Potiphar against Joseph. The third thing she uses is this claim that she has physical evidence. Here's his robe. He left it here when I cried out. I think if they had tabloids that reported on the royals in Egypt, the headline would read, scorned woman retaliates against vulnerable foreigner. That's totally what's happening here. As a result of her accusation, and Joseph's master took him and put him into the prison where the king's prisoners were confined. Now that's an interesting rep response because Potiphar most likely could have had Joseph executed. He probably had that right as an angry, wronged husband, but he also had that right because Joseph is his property, his slave, and he can do what he wants with him, but he doesn't. And it made me wonder, maybe Potiphar understands his wife's character pretty well. But it also helped me to see God is actively working. God is keeping Joseph alive, just like he kept him alive when his brothers wanted to kill him. When the world and justice abandon Joseph, God doesn't. Let's keep reading in verse 21. But the Lord was with Joseph and showed him steadfast love and gave him favor in the sight of the keeper of the prison. And the keeper of the prison put Joseph in charge of all the prisoners in the prison. Whatever was done there, he was the one who did it. The keeper of the prison paid no attention to anything that was in Joseph's charge because the Lord was with him. And whatever he did, the Lord made it succeed. All right, I want you to look closely at verse 21. This really is the key verse. God was with Joseph. God showed him steadfast love. There's our word. This is the Hebrew word hesed. And here we see it as this faithful love in action committed to Joseph forever. And you may have noticed the verses that follow there are completely parallel showing Joseph being put in charge of everything, Joseph being trusted. And it's evident to everyone that it's the Lord's presence with Joseph causing all of this success. Back to our Egyptian tabloid newspaper, the headline here might read, prisoner in charge of the prison with an exclamation point. How crazy is that? It's a remarkable supernatural success. We've got a prisoner exercising freedom. We have a, a convicted criminal who's being trusted and given authority. God is clearly actively working for Joseph's good here. Now, Looking at the story, maybe you're thinking, how in the world is any of this good? Joseph has been abandoned by his family, hauled off to another country, treated like a slave, falsely accused, condemned in a prison. How is that good? This is just the middle of Joseph's story. So I wanna tell you quickly how the story ends. I'm gonna summarize some big chapters here. Joseph keeps running things in the prison and he develops, God gives him the supernatural ability to interpret dreams. And Pharaoh starts having some pretty disturbing dreams. So Joseph is called in to interpret Pharaoh's dreams. 
Joseph lets him know that Egypt is going to experience seven years of great prosperity. But after that, Egypt and all the surrounding land is going to have seven years of severe famine. Pharaoh starts thinking, I need someone wise to help me. And he says this, I need someone who has the spirit of God in him. Hmm, who could that be? That's what everybody's been saying about Joseph since he got to Egypt. What follows in chapter 41 is another parallel passage just like these. Joseph comes in and takes charge of everything in Pharaoh's house. Joseph is given responsibility over Egypt. Joseph becomes second in command to the Pharaoh. And under his wise leadership, Joseph has all this grain and crops stored up to prepare for the time of famine. And when the famine comes, it is severe. They have food stored up in Egypt, but all the surrounding areas, the people are starving, including Jacob and his 11 remaining sons. The family that God is supposed to turn into a great nation is starving. You really have to go read these fascinating chapters. But what happens next? The brothers come to Egypt searching for food. They don't recognize Joseph. God does a remarkable work. The brothers demonstrate remorse and repentance. The family wounds are healed and Jacob and his entire family are invited to move to Egypt. When the rest of the world is starving, Jacob's family comes to Egypt where there is food and they prosper there. They don't just prosper because there's food. In the years that follow, they multiply exponentially and they become this numerous group of people, too many for them to count. They become the mighty nation there in Egypt because God's faithful to his love to Israel. He's made a covenant and a promise to turn them into a great nation. And God is also faithful to his love for the world because he promised to bless the world through that nation. And he did. Our Savior, Jesus Christ, was born through the nation of Israel. That's what God's faithful, steady love looks like. What does it look like for Joseph in his hard circumstances? God is with Joseph every minute, working out Joseph's future in his present. It's like God is taking all those broken pieces and gluing them back together. God is at work all the time for Joseph's good. You know, Joseph would later say of this experience as he's talking to his brothers, this is Genesis 50, verse 20, as for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. God's goodness to Joseph shows us Joseph never, ever lacked the expert care and tender supervision of his loving God. It's really an amazing and intricate story of God's sovereign plan for the world. But don't think for one moment that Joseph is just this pawn, like a chess piece, and God is moving him around, getting him in all the right places so God's plans will succeed. That's not what's happening here. God doesn't need Joseph to protect this nation, this family from starvation. Think about that really. This is the God who can cause manna to fall from the sky and feed the nation for 40 years in the desert. This is the God who can cause fresh, abundant water to come out of a hardened rock in the middle of the desert. And this is the God who can take a few loaves and fishes 
and multiply it and feed thousands on a hillside in Galilee. God doesn't need Joseph. Joseph needs God. And what God is doing in his love here, he's taking the little story of Joseph's life and he's bringing it into the big story of God's interaction with the world. That's why God is acting for Joseph here. He's bringing Joseph into God's story. And once he's connected to Joseph, God promises and he delivers on the promise never to leave him or forsake us. God has offered the same promise to each one of us. He has actively sought us out by sending Jesus to be the payment for our sin. And that is all for our good. If we choose to enter that covenant relationship with God, he is faithful to us forever, just like Joseph. He sticks with us in good times and in bad. We're never alone. He doesn't abandon us. You know, that's why Jesus so confidently says in John 10, no one can snatch you out of my hand. He says the same thing of the Father. No one can snatch you out of the Father's hands. That's why he confidently says to his disciples in Matthew 28, right before he's about to ascend to heaven, he reassures them, I'm with you always because he is faithful to us forever. And he's also active in our lives forever. He is working out our future plans as well. He works out our future in our present. And he often does it by redeeming and gluing together the broken parts of our story, just like Joseph's but he doesn't do it because he needs it. He does it because we need it. We need our lives pulled into the big story of God in the world. So in this story, we have a great understanding of God's active and faithful love. But how do we move this understanding from our head down here to our heart? And how do we let it actually change us? I think that happens when we learn to trust and hope in the active, faithful love of God. And I think if we look closely, we can see Joseph doing that. He doesn't do very much in these verses. Other people are doing things. But look close and you will see the activity of someone who's trusting the steady love of God. The first thing we see Joseph do, he chooses obedience when he is tempted. He knows it's a sin against God to have a relationship with Potiphar's wife. And so he chooses obedience because he trusts that God is working for his good. And ladies, I wanna let you know that sounds so simple, but that is really powerful and it's freeing. Sometimes we are totally vulnerable to other people's actions. Sometimes we are powerless to change our circumstances. I've been in a spot like that when my future was out of control because of someone else's choices. And I used to sit on my porch and rail at God. Have you abandoned me? I feel so out of control. And struggling with feeling out of control, God's spirit reminded me, Amy, you have 100% control over one thing, obedience. No matter what happens, will you be obedient to me in every single situation of my life? I can choose to be obedient to God. That is freeing because obedience brings us peace with God and obedience keeps us safely within the secure boundaries of God's perfect will. 
You can't control what other people are doing, but you can control whether you will be obedient to God. Obedience is an outward expression of a heart that trusts the goodness of God. I think that's why Joseph chooses obedience here. The other thing we see Joseph doing is he faithfully does the work that is assigned to him. He just does the work, work in Potiphar's house. Okay, work in the prison, okay. Now, don't you know Joseph had some early mornings before he got out of bed thinking, I don't really wanna be a slave today. I don't really want these people bossing me around and acting like they own me. I have no doubt Joseph had those feelings. He was aware of the injustice in his life. You know, he talks about his life from prison, Genesis 40, 15. Joseph says, I was indeed stolen out of the land of the Hebrews. And here also, I've done nothing that they should put me into this pit. Joseph knows great injustice has happened in his life, but he gets out of his bed every day and he does the work that's been given to him. And here's what we see, God meets him in that work. God enables that work, God blesses that work. This is one of the ways God is gluing together the broken parts of Joseph's story. So it makes me think I would be wise to consider what work is God asking me to do? What work is God asking you to do? Maybe it's the work of caring for an ill family member. Or maybe it's the work of persevering in a difficult relationship. Maybe it's the work of living as a single when you'd rather be married. Or maybe it's the work of enduring an illness with faith, enduring a financial reversal with hope. When we trust in God's love and that understanding moves from our head down into our heart, then every day we can say, this is the day the Lord has made. This is the work God has ordered for me to do. This is the place I can be obedient and do the work and give glory to God. And I'll just be honest with you. You've probably all experienced this. We don't always feel overwhelming trust and hope in God's steadfast love. I would just encourage you, just do it. Just be obedient. Just do the work he's given you to do because he's promised you that he is there. When I have doubted and been willing to just do the work, that's when my eyes sort of open and I discover God's presence with me. He's there all along. This is one way we discover him. We're told in Psalm 33, verse 18, Behold, the eye of the Lord is on those who fear him, on those who hope in his steadfast love. Ladies, if you are living in this covenant relationship with God, and I sincerely hope you are, if you live in this relationship, you can know his love for you will never alter. You can know that he will always work for good in your circumstances. You can know you are never far from the expert care and tender supervision of your loving God because that is his character, that is his nature, and you can count on it. Let's pray. God, we just thank you for your love. We thank you that you offer to be in a relationship with us and assure us over and over again that you stick with us forever. So we ask for your help. Help to believe that in our hearts. Help to trust and hope each day in your steadfast love. 
Let obedience and work and diligence flow from our lives because we are so steadfast in our hope and trust in you, Lord. We ask these things in Jesus' name, amen.